0: And welcome to Always Take Notes.
1: We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going.
0: If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches.
1: If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter. worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material.
0: Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the novelist Mohsin Hamid.
1: We spoke to Mohsin about moving from Pakistan to America, then from the corporate to the literary world, about writing The Reluctant Fundamentalist and the Shadow of 9-11, and his new book, The Last White Man.
0: It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Mosin, great to have you on the podcast. We wanted to start with the new novel, The Last White Man. So it's about a white man who wakes up to find himself dark-skinned and how the phenomenon then spreads more widely in society. Both Kafka and José Saramoga have been mentioned as possible models, but what was your own point of departure with the idea? We saw that you'd mentioned The Fall by Camus.
2: I've always been interested in uh, the mid-20th century, early 20th century modernist writers, people like Virginia Woolf and Jorge Luis Borges and Camus and Kafka and Calvino, and and uh, Salamago, who comes later, uh, in a sense, is following on from from that tradition. And one thing which I found quite interesting about that tradition is that uh, those writers were writing in a time of war and upheaval, uh, technological change, when uh, um, the industrial revolution had meant that work had become profoundly different, and um, and also a rising sense of polarization. And they responded by. Uh, Trying to figure out, you know, how the novel, how stories, how literature worked um, and taking it apart and building it back together. And so uh, for me, that that project, I guess, continues and seems quite appropriate to the times we find ourselves in now. And and I guess for me, the starting point is I think that what we call reality is perhaps less real than we imagine. So the color red uh, doesn't actually exist. You know, it, red is a way in which our brains represent to each of us individually, that uh, light is being reflected off of a, an object at a particular wavelength. Similarly, ourself, uh, the more we find out about how our brains and minds work through um, neuroscience, et cetera, we discover that uh, as the ancients have told us, our, ourself is largely a kind of fiction. It's something we come up with and are constantly playing with and changing. So for me, the idea of, of having a slight rupture in reality as the starting point of the novel, of, of taking something that's very familiar, but skewing it ever so slightly, uh, creates a kind of fertile place for the imagination to go. And it's, it's, a, it's I guess, a jumping off point that, um, that Kafka and before Kafka, you know, many writers, the Arabian Nights, the you know, Greek mythology, uh, ancient literature from all over the world has, has dabbled with. Uh, and I thought it was it was appropriate to what I wanted to do.
1: I read in one piece that the idea itself you've been sort of mulling it over for about twenty years. Is that right?
2: Yeah, uh, I, I, I suppose I had an Anders-like experience uh, twenty years ago. So in July of two thousand and one, I moved from New York to London, and I had lived at that point thirty of my first sorry eighteen of my first thirty years uh, in in the West, uh, mostly in the US. Uh, and when the attacks of September 11 2001 took place um, I had been somebody who although I had brown skin and a Muslim name um, I wouldn't have sort of considered discrimination to have been a particularly important factor in my life I was aware of it in society around me but I didn't you know think of it as much more than a very minor annoyance as far as I was concerned myself and uh, you know living in cosmopolitan cities and having studied at particular universities and having a well-paying job uh, it didn't bother me too much in my, in my own day-to-day. Uh, and then suddenly I found uh, after 9-11 that uh, you know, I was being stopped at airports and uh, held for hours at immigration and uh, people were getting nervous when I boarded a bus, you know, unshaven on the weekend with a backpack and sometimes they would switch seats. And, and I realized how almost overnight I had been imagined into this different category. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, I want things to go back to how they were before 9 11, um, you know, not to be in this different category, to be sort of just a person again. And I felt like I'd lost something. And, and as time went by I, and I considered, you know, what I had lost, uh, I, I thought, you know, maybe I've lost a kind of partial whiteness. That if, if whiteness in a country like the UK or the US is the ability to just be a person, uh, so just to be a human being with nothing else attached. Um, I had partaken of some of the benefits of that. And now I was finding that I wasn't just a person. I was a person who also came with a sense of threat and suspicion uh, and other connotations that I didn't like. And and, uh, and I think when you discover, when I discovered that that uh, one's identity can be imagined onto one, you know, raci- racially, ethnically, by others so easily, um, it's something I wanted to respond to in fiction. And I, I addressed, I guess, the specifics of of mutual suspicion between sort of quote-unquote westerners and quote-unquote muslims in in rotten fundamentalist which plays with this idea of how suspicion gets constructed and, and how we are constructing it ourselves but the underlying question of of one's race or one's kind of identity um, and how it's this sort of imaginary thing and it gets placed onto us but then once it's imagined into existence it has a real effect uh, something I still wanted to deal with. And eventually, when I thought of this particular way and of a man who wakes up dark, who had been uh, light, um, and a world where this begins to spread, that seemed like uh, the way for me to tackle that, that particular
0: story. And other responses to to the novel have suggested it as a kind of parable or, or having a fable-like quality. And particularly this this feature in your writing of kind of using anonymity or trimming away details so things aren't placed as well that that also came up in how to get filthy rich in rising asia could you tell us about about that idea is that something you're deliberately trying to do by shearing away some of the the contact points
2: i i think people often say you know they use words like parable or parable or or allegory um i'm not quite sure if, if i would use those terms myself i understand what they mean i don't disagree with them but um when i think of an allegory i think of something which is saying one thing and talking about something else, you know, uh, for example, Orwell comes to mind in, 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 uh, and some other writers come to mind who will, you know, writing about colonialism, describe a group of animals, for example. So, so this novel is sort of what it's about. So it is actually about uh, a race and the characters are experiencing a loss of race. So, so allegory doesn't quite feel right. And, and Parable, you know, is sort of a, a kind of morality tale, almost by definition, sort of small in, 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 in scope. At least it feels like that to me. And I think something of that is is of interest to me, but again, it doesn't feel, you know, quite right. But I think what people are connecting to is that the novels have an intentional uh de-specificity and intentional gaps built into them. Uh not just this novel, but but Exit West and and How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, very much so. Um, and in this novel, uh those gaps and that de-specificity work in particular ways. So We have two characters who are named, Anders and Una, but no other character is named. We have um, an unnamed city in an unnamed country. We don't really know what Anders looks like when he changes. Um, You know, what what are these people looking like post-change as the world, uh, as people darken? How are they darkening? Uh, We also maintain a kind of tight focus on the domestic drama, really, of Anders' relationship of three love stories, you know, the love story between Anders and Una, between Una and Una's mother, and between Anders and Anders' father. And these three love stories are really the, the very heart of the novel. And the rest of what happens in the town, in the country, is happening sort of off camera, um, so to speak. You, you, you get a feeling for it, it's sort of hinted at, but it happens outside. And the reason um, that the novel is written like this and that there's so much space left open, uh, so much stuff not described, is because I feel that the particular strength of, of written fiction, uh, among the, you know, the three or the, I guess the various mass reproduced storytelling forms that we have at the moment, the dominant ones would be television and cinema. Um, and then, you know, literature, I guess is, is, is the third or or one of, or, or, or perhaps more than that, but those three come to mind. And, and among these three, um, most common forms, in literature, you see something quite different from cinema and, 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 and television. In cinema and television, you are a viewer who sees something and hears something that looks and sounds much like the world actually does. Um, and of course, there's some imagination required on the part of the viewer, but, um, but you're seeing the world and you're hearing the world. When you read a book, you encounter something that doesn't look anything like the world. It's letters and spaces and punctuation marks against a white field. And you, the reader, are animating that with your imagination into what you call a novel. Uh, the reader is really making the novel. You know, a novelist kind of writes a half novel, which is a series of prompts. And the reader takes that half novel and imagines it into people and ideas and emotions and the way things look, etc. There's a degree of co-creation involved in, in, in reading, which I think is far exceeds that in, in, in the other storytelling forms. And... That suggests to me that one of the things that literature can usefully do you know in our present moment is to afford people a sort of maximum opportunity to do this to uh, to use their imagination to imagine into existence a novel and to think of a novel as an invitation to sort of play collective make believe like children where you uh, agree that you 're going to play house or pirate or astronaut and then you start playing and um, you come up with some ideas and this tree is the mast of a ship and those leaves are the fins of sharks and that tree is the ship we have to get to and and suddenly you're in this world i think what what a novel does is it allows readers to do that um, that kind of participatory imaginative co-creative play as adults which is something we almost never do as adults and so i've written this novel really so that the reader has a lot of space to imagine it into existence much of the shape the novel takes will depend on how the reader imagines it into existence. And what hopefully the reader becomes aware of is both what they did imagine into existence, um, you know, why they imagined that way, and, and whether they wish to continue imagining it that way. So, so, um, so hopefully uh, the effect is a little bit different than what we might think of as an, an allegory or, um, or a parable, but something more like um, a, a self-aware uh, a game of make believe you know between two kids and and uh, and I think that that's that's quite useful because race is such an uncomfortable terrain that it strikes me that it can be valuable to be able to enter into it into an imaginary realm associated with it um, in solitude without anyone else around participating in this novel that a novels novelist has written, but really making a lot of it yourself so that's that's i guess how I've, how I thought about. Uh, this question of of, of not being so specific and being a bit vague.
1: I think the theme of imagination and existence leads very um, nicely onto the next question, which is your kind of role as novelist. And I saw in a previous interview, you said, I want to try to imagine a future I'd like to live in and then write books and do things that, in my own small way, make it more likely that that future will come to exist. Could you kind of unpack that idea with regards to your new novel?
2: So I'm 51 years old. And, you know, for probably the first 30 years of my life, I had the general sense that the world was getting better. And I might have been mistaken, I probably was mistaken, but many people in the latter part of the 20th century seemed to feel the same thing. Not everybody, and of course, there were wars and all sorts of horrors and catastrophes going on. But there seemed to be this global narrative that over time, we would have less inequality, we would have more ability to, to protect our environment, we would have less racism and discrimination, we'd be more inclusive and more open and more prosperous, really. And somewhere in the last couple of decades, that that worldview has come to seem, you know, to many people, um, ridiculous. Uh, you know, when, when I talk about uh, th- thinking this way to, to young students in high school or college when I'm giving a lecture and I ask for questions and we're talking afterwards, oftentimes they will tell me that they've, they've never felt like that. It doesn't feel like that at all. And I think uh, uh, all over the world, there's a sense that the future no longer looks very promising. And what's happened as a result of that is because we find it difficult to imagine a future that is better, you know, the future now looks like it will be one of environmental degradation of of sort of rampant nationalisms and and ethnic chauvinisms and uh, divisions of of increasing inequality of, of, um, you know, so many things that don't look good to so many of us. The, the danger of that is we wind up, in a sense, um, turning away from the future. And the future starts to repel us. And we then are easily attracted by nostalgic narratives. And these are narratives that take us back to the past, that say um, things were better 20 years ago, you know, before the immigrants arrived, or 50 years ago when America was more white, or, you know, 1,000 years ago in the golden age of Islam or uh, the age of Hindutva before Muslims arrived in India, or, you know, whatever. Uh, In in place after place, there's some kind of nostalgic narrative that tells us that some point in the past actually should be our destination. And this gives birth to a particular kind of politics, a sort of reactionary politics that imagines that we really should go back to this place. The problem is the place often didn't exist. Um, It's nothing like what we imagined it to be. Um, and even if it did exist, it may not have been very good. And, and, and even if it did exist and was good, um, we can't go there, uh, in the same way that I might decide that being 18 year old, 18 years old is superior to being 51. But if I tried to suddenly act and be like an 18 year old, it'd be a kind of monstrous, uh, you know, exercise. So how do you, you know, how do you, um, uh, unmake the omelet? Like, I don't think you can, uh, you can't go back to the egg. So this nostalgic um, politics, which, which I think is now the dominant form of politics in much of the world, either the leader or the leader of opposition of, of most countries seems to be somebody um, articulating a nostalgic view like this um, i think, I think that it 's difficult to resist that view uh, and that kind of politics unless one can begin to consider a future that 's desirable. Um, you know How do you combat nostalgic narratives if if, um, if you can't have a non-nostalgic, uh, I mean, if you can't have a, a, an optimistic view. Now, I think there's a difference between a kind of naive optimism, which says, it doesn't really matter what we do, things are gonna be fine. I don't believe in that at all. Uh, but I think that it is possible to have a kind of critical optimism, which says that if we do certain things, and if we imagine in certain ways, we can conceive of uh, inclusive, desirable, plausible futures that we would like to go towards. And, and one of the things um, that we've seen throughout history is that this does happen. You know, incredibly diverse communities do come into existence. You know, the Roman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Ottoman Empire, Soviet Union, and you know, uh, many contemporary countries um, have had moments where it seemed like there was a narrative that was bringing people together. Uh, when that narrative switches into a kind of threat narrative that anybody a little bit different from you is a threat, uh it 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 falls apart very quickly you know Russians and Ukrainians live side by side for centuries seemingly quite peacefully and suddenly you know they can't um you know similarly in in, in the former yugoslavia or in indian pakistan partition in 1947 so all of this is a i guess preamble to saying that i think it's interesting as a novelist to consider um exploring these sort of optimistic potential destinations uh in exit west what i tried to do in a way was to gaze into the migration apocalypse. You know, what if everybody could move? And asked a question which was, you know, would it be apocalyptic? Maybe it wouldn't actually. Maybe it would be in some ways better than what we have now. And similarly in, I guess, The Last White Man, what I'm, I suppose, trying to do is to ask the question of, you know, if we were unable to sort each other by race, if we didn't have that mechanism, we couldn't quite tell who somebody was on the basis of race and we had to let go of that, what might occur? And would that be something that we could, you know, get to and and if we got to, would it be better than where we are? And at least offer that up as a as a as a possibility for you know for the reader to consider.
0: Could we roll back and, and actually kind of following on from that point to your own early life and this this cross-cultural experience that you had growing up, partially in the United States and and partially in Pakistan? Could you explain how that worked for you and then particularly where the the origins of your literary interests fitted into that?
2: So I left Pakistan for America at the age of three in 1974. Uh, my father uh, was a university professor, um, was and is, and, um, and he went to do his PhD in California. And so my mother and my father and I moved out there. Uh, my sister was born there. I arrived in California, uh, fluent in Urdu and Punjabi, but not speaking a word of English. And my parents report that uh, I was once sort of wandering outside the townhouse where we lived. And um, a couple of days after we arrived, and all the townhouses were identical. And eventually, my mother heard sort of crying and came to the front door. And I was standing in front of the house next to ours, in front of a very sort of befuddled neighbor who was looking down at this little Pakistani boy. And I was looking up at him, and he wasn't my mother. And I was surrounded by a group of children who were—I'm imagining them as sort of like a, like a little Benetton ad, sort of a model United Nations of, 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 of diversity. You know, kids from all over the world who had come on the Stanford campus because it was, it was really quite incredible in the 1970s. It felt like you, know, you had, you had uh, sort of shrunk the UN uh, uh, General Assembly down to a bunch of five-year-olds and, and put them you know, barefoot onto this campus. And, and so there were kids from all over the world standing around me. And, um, and they asked my mother, you know, why, what's wrong with him? Why, do, why can't he speak? And she said, he can't speak. And why can't he speak properly? She said, he can't speak properly, he just can't speak English yet. And my mother and father told me that after that, I didn't really speak for a month. And I sat in front of a television and just kept to myself. I mean, I was you know in the house with my parents, but I didn't talk, they were quite concerned. And a month later, when I next spoke, I was speaking in English in complete sentences with an American accent. And it wasn't until I was nine, 1980, when we moved back to Pakistan, that uh, my family realized that I didn't speak a word of Urdu anymore. I'd completely forgotten Urdu. So I returned to Pakistan as a nine-year-old. Um, at a time unlike today when phone calls were incredibly expensive, international flights were incredibly expensive, you know, mail took forever to arrive. And I never really had any contact with any of my friends from my childhood, my previous childhood ever again. Um, it was a complete rupture. And I didn't speak Urdu. Um, so I was basically this Californian kid uh, arriving in, into, into Lahore. Um, and then once again, I had to learn the language and you know, figure out how to sort of become chameleon-like and blend in. Uh, which eventually I managed, uh, and, and then in 1989, I came to America uh, at the age of 18, and then Britain at 30, and then back to Pakistan around the age of 40. Um, and so I've, I've been, I guess, moving around throughout my whole life, and, and as a result of this, having spent you know, a decade or more in, in, in three different countries, the UK, the US, and Pakistan, I'm a thoroughly sort of mongrelized, hybridized human being. And and I think I'm, I've become quite sensitive to um, the feeling that um, that purity, that some kind of uh, you know purity of the original people, and one's belonging to that original group um, is a requirement for membership in a society because by its very nature that seems to preclude people like me. So whether it's in Pakistan or America or Britain, I guess I've always been very sensitive to the notion that societies are starting to. Um, move towards, um, you know, the original folk, uh, the original people who are the true people of that place. Um, and, and I think a lot of my fiction has been in response to that, you know, Mott Smoke, my first novel was a look at, at, you know, sex and drugs and contemporary life in 1990s Lahore, um, uh, among young people in a particular urban sliver, you know, written from a standpoint that was both an insider sort of Lahori standpoint, but also, um, a half American standpoint, because I'd lived so many of my years in the U.S., and then the Rotten fundamentalist sort of reversed that. That was a novel that was about America, uh, uh, written in many ways as, as an as an insider from America, but with a point of view that was sort of half um, Pakistani and and uh, and you know my subsequent books have I guess um, in a way uh, um, been less specifically tied to places. They've been a little bit vague in terms of where they where they are. And they've dealt with in different ways, you know, migration and displacement and and changing identity and how we're perceived, Um, all of which, I guess, are the themes that have really defined my life.
1: You studied at Princeton when you returned to the US um, as a teenager um, and you read international relations, but also did some literature classes. What was the experience of being taught by Toni Morrison, um, who later sort of gave you feedback on Moth Smoke, and Joyce Carol Oates? What was that experience like?
2: So I arrived at university in 1989, and I had no idea that you could take, you know, creative writing classes. I didn't go to Princeton thinking that I would uh, uh, do creative writing. And this woman across the hall from me in the dormitory where I was living my first year was taking a creative writing class, and she told me she was taking this, and I I asked her, "You know, what do you mean?" She said, "Well, we write, you know, short stories, um, fiction, a few stories every semester." And I said, "And and it's a regular class, like you know, like every other class, you know, history or, or economics or." politics. She said, yeah, and it's also pass fail. And I thought, you know, this is an incredible sort of scam. Like how, how could this exist? Um, I have to try this. And so I, I, uh, applied for a creative writing class and I was accepted into one. And then I wound up taking two semesters with Joyce Carol Lotz and uh, my final semester of university with, with Tony Morrison. And, um, and something happened, you know, that was very important for me because I never thought that I could be a writer. It, it didn't seem to me like a, um, within the realm of really possibility. I, I didn't know any writers. Um, I love books. I've read lots of books, but I just somehow assumed that somebody else wrote them. And it was only really in university that it occurred to me that, you know, maybe I could be the person who wrote them or one of the people who writes them. And, and when you take classes with people like Joyce Carol Lutz and Toni Morrison and they take your work seriously because they took their students' work seriously, um, you begin to believe that, you know, maybe you have permission to do this. And so perhaps the biggest thing that I got from university was just, just the permission to believe that I could be a writer. And, and once I began believing that it's sort of what I really wanted to do with my life in terms of what they taught me specifically. One thing that I often say about uh, Toni Morrison's class is that, um, she used to say that, you know, you need to keep your reader a half heartbeat ahead of the action of your novel. Um, when they shouldn't know what's coming next but when it happens it should feel inevitable and of course in in cinema you know that's done with with the camera work and with the score etc um but uh in written fiction it's done a great deal of that work is done um formally in terms of the sentences that you use and the cadences you set up and um other things that you're doing that are creating an environment um for the reader to accept the inevitability of what's, of what's happening. And, and that's, that's something which I guess I've, I've continued to do you know, to this day. And uh, it informs, for example, the sentences of, of The Last White Man, which are built the way they are, really to, to serve that purpose of, of, of creating the environment for the reader to do or to accept what is, what is about to happen.
3: Hi, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes, I hope you're enjoying Simon Rachel's conversation with the novelist Mosin Hamid. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we hear bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week we're going to hear from the journalist and author Maggie Ferguson and she's going to share a piece of advice she actually was given at the start of her career and she wanted to share with you.
4: I think I actually had the best piece of advice uh, when I had my um, strange uh, Oxbridge term as a Newtonian. And um, one of the masters there, who was my private tutor, asked me to read Middlemarch. And I did. And we um, got together to talk about it. And he said, did you like it? And I was very gushing and said, I loved it. It was fantastic. And he said, why? And I just wasn't used to being asked that kind of question. So I got myself in a complete knot about it and eventually he just said very calmly do you think it might be because dorothea is a wonderful woman and i thought my god you're able to say something as simple as that and that's my that would be my best uh piece of advice you know have the courage of your convictions say what you think and it doesn't need to be very sophisticated
3: That was Maggie Ferguson, and if you were interested in what Maggie had to say, you can listen to our full interview with her via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. But for now, back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Mosin Hamid.
0: Could you tell us about your immediate postgraduate career with these parallel tracks So on the one hand getting corporate jobs at McKinsey going to Harvard Law School and on the other hand breaking through as a, a fiction writer and particularly we love on the show to, to get into the the kind of nitty-gritty of how people got an agent how they went around getting a publishing deal and, and that sort of thing so so how firstly why were you I suppose to taking this two-track route and then how did it work out in practice so
2: I even when I began dreaming that I could be a writer which began from a university um, I still had no thought whatsoever that i could make a living as a writer and so i deferred my law school admission for a year and uh wrote another draft of my first novel which i had written a first draft of in in, in tony morrison's class in my last year of college and then i went to law school uh, at harvard and i discovered you know weeks into it that i didn't really like the law um but uh, uh but a combination of you know not having the courage to stop doing it um also now being, you know, beginning to have taken on quite a bit of debt to pay for the thing, and, and the sense that I still had to make a living somehow, um, so I might as well see this through. Uh, and I kept working on my novel. At law school, um, eventually, I, uh, I found a professor who taught a class called Law and Literature, and I went to him and said, look, for my third year thesis, um, I don't really want to write about the law. Um, I'm working on this novel. I'd like to submit this novel as my uh, law school thesis And and he said look I I really don't want to read another thesis about the law If you can find even the flimsiest of arguments that can give us a reason for how we can accept this as a law school thesis I'm very happy to advise you and and at that point the novel had um, Had completely changed. It was you know unrecognizable from what I I guess it began as Uh, It had taken on the form of a trial um, and, uh, I remember watching Pulp Fiction by Quentin Tarantino in my first year of law school and, uh, uh really liking that kind of, um, disaggregated way of, of telling a narrative with sort of broken parts. Um, and, and, and my own novel had sort of splintered into these different people telling their stories and, um, and it became this, this trial. And so, and so I said, look, that, you know, a trial is about, uh, try to arrive at, at truth to through sort of competing contradictory claims and this novel is exactly the same thing he says fantastic you know write that on a page and we're good to go and so that became my law school thesis and then i didn't want to work in the law firm and mckinsey had begun recruiting from uh a law school at this time and so uh, i got a job as a consultant and then i was working as a consultant um and uh, i think it was the first year uh, retreat of the of the consulting firm where they took us all up to Vermont for some skiing, and the head of the office um, was was holding up the bar late at night, um, and there were only a few people left standing, and uh, you know I was one of them, and and he said you know so Mohsen, you know how are things going, and um, it was during the dot com era, and people were leaving consulting in droves to try their hand at, at becoming billionaires and starting their dot com companies, and and I guess McKinsey was keen to keep people that they liked. And uh, he just said, you know, what would make you really happy here? Like, what would what would what what, what the perfect job? And I said, well, you know, I'm writing this novel, and I'd love to take three months off unpaid, you know, every year to work on it. And, you know, it was, it was at that point in the evening when inevitably he said, uh, that sounds, you know, completely doable. Let's, let's talk about it when we get back to the office. And so I, I began this sort of nine-month consulting, three-month not consulting, writing consulting, hybrid life. I finished my first book, uh, published it. Um, I did a kind of uh, nine months non-consulting, three-month consulting year, um, and then eventually uh, decided to try my hand at just, you know, writing fiction full-time. Quickly discovered that uh, my second novel was probably going to take about as long as my first, which was seven years, and then got another job in consulting in London. And and my conditions were that I would only work three days a week, so I did that for a bit. And then I negotiated another two days a week and one day a week, and... You know, in terms of my professional career, I think a lot of people um, in in that business, their goal was to sort of make more and more money over time. And my goal was to make exactly the same amount of money, uh, enough to pay my rent and support living in London or New York while working less and less days and having more time free to write books. And, you know, after, I guess, in around 2009, so 16 years from when I started my first novel, um, on the back of, of Latin Fundamentalist, I finally felt able to write for a living and um, move to Pakistan to do that. You also asked about, you know, how did I get an agent and how, how did that process work? And so I'd been, uh, my first novel, Malt Smoke, I wrote a draft in college and I took a year off and wrote a draft afterwards and took, wrote multiple drafts in um, law school. And in a way, each of these drafts was a different book. So it wasn't that a draft for me was I'd have a Microsoft Word document and then I would edit it. Um, I'd write a draft, it wouldn't work, and then I'd write another novel, the same basic story, but with, you know, no real sentences in common. And so each year I'd be writing another novel, trying to write this novel properly, uh, seven novels in seven years, I guess. Um, well, the last couple of novels were more like traditional drafts. They they, they, they were built on a, a, like a fourth or fifth draft. That actually, at that point, it was working. But... Um, but I didn't show it to anybody. I showed it to my writer friends, uh, who are also like me, you know, hoping to get published one day. Um, and uh, and then one of them was in this Radcliffe Publishing workshop, where I guess you go when you want to get a job in the publishing business. And a literary agent came and spoke to them about agenting, and he handed, without telling me, the printout of my manuscript uh, to this agent. And then this agent got in touch, and said, "Look, I've read your." Manuscript. your friend gave it to me up in Boston, and I'd like to represent you. And there was a woman in my office at McKinsey whose mother was an agent. So I said, you know, could you please ask your mother if this person is a le- like a legitimate agent? I don't know anything about this stuff. You know, is, is this somebody I should be wanting to be represented by? And, and she said, um, she came back to me a day later saying, my, my mother's never heard of her, but she wants to see your manuscript. Now, I don't know if she really had never heard of her, but, uh, um, but she, she asked for a manuscript. And, and then she handed my manuscript to her former assistant who had just recently begun commissioning writers of his own, I think that year. Um, And, uh, and he, um, he basically asked uh, uh, to see me and he said, look, I'd like to represent you. And we talked it through and we really hit it off. And then he gave me some edits. I did some minor revisions. Um, He did an auction and um, uh, there were, I think, two or three publishing houses. He sent out maybe ten. Most of them passed, but two or three seemed interested. And of the two or three that seemed interested, um, FSG uh, in the US—it was a US auction—was uh, you know one of the sort of most famous, I guess, literary publishers. They also offered the least money. And my agent, you know, uh, I think showing the good judgment for which I will, you know, always rely on him, said, "I think you should go for the lowest bid. I think you should go with FSG. I think it's the right home for this book." They're a serious literary publisher and um and I think you know that's what matters. You know, forget about how much money it is. None of the advances were very were very much. It wasn't like this was, you know, millions of dollars. It was probably, I don't know, ten, fifteen thousand versus maybe twenty, twenty five thousand dollars. I don't remember the exact numbers. But in that kind of ballpark. And so I went with FSG and there I met my editor Becky, and she worked with me to revise the book. The most editing I, I ever did with an editor was on my first book. And since then, which is nineteen ninety-eight. Uh, the book came out in 2000. I've had the same editor and the same agent ever since, almost a quarter century now. And Becky moved from FSG to Harcourt and from Harcourt to Riverhead, uh, so I followed her each time. So my first three books in the U.S. had different publishers in, uh, for each book, but um, but since then I've been with Riverhead. And uh, uh, you know, my I guess for uh, for other writers who're thinking about their careers, you know, my advice really is 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 to figure out you know how to be able to write every day and support yourself while doing that. Um, to give yourself a few years, or even a decade or two to, to make it work. And to really focus on getting, you know, somebody you, you you truly trust as your agent and editor. And then once you find them, not to let go, and just to, to stay with those people.
1: To remain on the subject of money, actually, which is something that we ask every guest about, are you still doing some consultancy work? Because I know you were working for Wolf Ollins, I think, in New York a bit, one day a week.
2: Well, In, in London, actually. Yeah, I, was with Wolf. I, actually, I wound up running the Wolf Holmes London office um, uh, on my three-day week calendar almost 15 years ago, I think, briefly. And then I continued to freelance with them. And uh, um, at one point, uh, a consultant that uh, I'd actually been involved in hiring who later wound up running the London office and then ran the whole firm, was CEO. Um, uh, he said, you know, what if we formalized your role as, as chief storytelling officer and we could just bring you in on sort of interesting jobs and you sort of, you know, talk to CEOs about... Uh, narrative and and brand and whatnot. And so I did that for a while. Um, I I haven't done that now for some years. I do, I suppose, a little bit of consulting, but in different ways. I do it for, you know, family members who are starting a restaurant or starting a business. Uh, I've advised the Lahore Literary Festival. You know, I helped set up the Lahore Biennale. And and I think what I like about it is, as a novelist, you basically sit in a room all by yourself for, for years, which is an incredibly lonely thing to do. And what I've always enjoyed about consulting is you get to solve problems together with, with people um, every day. I suppose if, if I hadn't become a father uh, and my wife and I you know, both work and so we divide the, the, uh, the house spouse duties between us and so I have a lot of, I guess, childcare in, in, my, in my life and figuring out homework and you know, taking people to uh, class and this, that and the other. So that gets me out of my solitary world if I didn't have that, I think I probably would still want to be doing consulting or something like it, uh, maybe teaching, on a more regular basis. Uh, you know, aside from the financial side of things, um, and I think it can be it can be a relief sometimes to not be relying on your fiction to make a living or entirely relying on your fiction because you can, in a sense, be more willing to take risks and and less frightened by the risks because you think, okay, well, worst case scenario, I can still pay my rent. But aside from the financial part of it, I think there's 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 a sort of psychological or psychic part of it, where it's very, very difficult to be, uh, to be a writer for, for many people. It's not a very natural thing to be so cut off from humanity. So I, I, um, I've always liked having something that forces me to deal with other people every day. And 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 I miss it when I when I don't have something like that.
0: Could you tell us now about the Reluctant Fundamentalist and its kind of path to being this this phenomenon? That it was. I saw, I think, in another interview that you were working on it pre nine eleven. In fact, we're discussing it at a dinner, literally a few days before the attack, and then said, you know, well, I better I better carry on with it after the attacks took place. But could you tell us in particular about you know when it became clear to you that this was going to be the the global smash that it was.
2: I mean, it never, it never was really clear to me. It was sort of strange because the, the book began before 9-11, a story of this young Muslim guy working in a sort of corporate job in New York City, who has this failed love affair, grows a beard and goes back to Pakistan. And in his growing a beard, you know, there's some mutual suspicion that happens. And uh, I remember showing it to my agent and, you know, he didn't really like it. and. Um, and he said you know I, I don't really buy this tension you know this muslim american why isn't he you know people not accepting him and um and then perhaps a month or two later 911 the attacks of 911 happened and um and my agent sort of you know a month or two after that said, you know that book that book about the tension between the muslim guy and america um you know let's let's go back to that and I, but i i sort of you know, at that point thought you know I, i'm not sure that book stands anymore because you would, would read that book now and you would say you know this is sort of a preamble to 9-11 this, this is this is sort of to say you read that book after 9-11 thinking oh what you're saying is this happens and then there's 9-11 9-11 it totally um, I guess overwhelmed this and that book I guess was more like a parable uh, perhaps it was a very um, uh, you know sort of out of focus gentle tale Uh and, and I spent many years continuing to try to set the book before 9-11. I didn't want to deal with 9-11 in the novel, but it became impossible. You know, uh, how can you deal with these themes? It always felt like either the book would would bring 9-11 into the action of the novel or it would be set sort of set up for 9-11. It couldn't escape the gravity of 9-11. And uh, and eventually I figured out that um, uh, I had to have both Pakistan and America in the novel simultaneously. And then this sort of dramatic monologue where chengez meets this american in pakistan but tells a story that's set in america so the novel is simultaneously in both places throughout um and this kind of uh, dramatic monologue where the american doesn't get to speak and so the reader has to imagine what's being said and the reader has to sort of come up with you know is a ch- is a, a threat is he being threatened by the american is neither happening or both happening how do i feel about this and the novel in a way is this sort of thriller where nothing thrilling really happens, you know, the, the, the thriller aspect is created by playing with the degree of suspicion and fear that was so rampant in all of us, really, in the, in that first, in the first few years after 9-11. Um, and then when it came time for publication, it had, in a sense, two very different publications. Uh, in the US, what happened was that, that Barnes and Noble uh, decided that this was going to be a book they were really going to champion. And so they put it on the front of their bookstores. And they made it part of this program, and they really promoted it. And it went onto the U.S. sort of bestseller list, um, and then it, you know, it sort of, uh, uh, as any book, I guess, promoted into high sales, uh, as they often often happens. It sort of, sort of, I guess, started to come down from there. In the U.K., it was a very quiet publication. It, you know, I wasn't particularly interviewed. It didn't get that much. You know, there was, there was almost nobody cared really. Although I lived in London. Um, and, uh, so I was living in London and, uh, I become a British citizen and, um, uh, and yet, you know, I was being described as Pakistani novelist and nobody really interviewed me and nobody really cared, but the book just sort of trickled around along with almost no readers. And, uh, um, and then it started to get readers, you know, a few months later and it was helped along, I think by being shortlisted for the Booker prize, which got some more attention and more interviews and people began to, I guess, encounter it. And then it was just a sort of slow build. It, um, it was probably selling much more in its second and third and fourth years than it was in its first. And so in the UK, it was a kind of word of mouth, very slow building bestseller. In the US, it was this sort of heavily promoted bestseller, which then tapered off. So it was really two very different publications. Um, I never knew it was going to be this sort of big bestseller. Um, uh, you know, in, in a way, um, I suppose one hopes every novel will be a big bestseller. And one also knows that it's very, very unlikely that any of them are going to be bestsellers. And so you have that, um, that sort of twin sense of ridiculous optimism and, and crushing pessimism at the same time. Uh, but yeah, that's how that book sort of came about. And what that book did give me was, you know, finally, I was able to imagine uh, writing for a living um, and, then, and then moved to Pakistan to do that.
1: We're coming towards the end of our time, um, so a kind of penultimate question for me. Um, could we jump ahead to Exit West? Um, I was interested to see that you've cited children's literature as a kind of particular influence on that book. Could you uh, explain that idea a little?
2: Yeah, when I was, um, uh, I guess my first three novels, um, uh Maltemoke, The Russian Fundamentalist and How to Get Filthy in Rising Asia, each explore the, the nature of the reader-writer relationship and, and have a duress, direct address of, of using you uh, in different ways. Um, you are cast as this kind of judge, uh, judging this surreal trial in Motsmo. You is the person that Cengiz is addressing, possibly the reader, um, this unnamed American stranger in a bazaar in Lahore in and Fundamentalist. And in How to Get filthy in Asia, the main character is you and uh, and it's also a novel about the relationship between the reader and the writer in a sense the most directly about that of all my books uh, what i figured out i guess after doing these three u novels um uh, and i was living in pakistan at the time and i started thinking you know Am I writing in a way that presupposes that people have had similar kind of uh, educational and other background to me that they have a certain interpretive apparatus that they bring to novels? Is there something weirdly elitist about my approach? Uh, writing novels that depend in a sense on misleading the reader and creating attention out of that misleading um, seems interesting to me. And I, you know, I wanted to do it. But but am I missing something by doing that? And, and so I, um, what I wanted to do, I guess, in Exit West was to, um, try to write a novel that actually said what it meant, that sort of had the decoder ring for the book built into the book. Now that might seem like a very simple thing to do, except I had never done it before and I had no idea how to do it. And so I thought, you know, who does this well? And then I thought of children's literature where, where very often the book is sort of saying what it means. And where, uh, in a sense, you are invited to be on the side of the characters. You know, you're, you're, you're cheering for um, Bilbo or for um, Wilbur the pig and Charlotte, you know, as they face their various nemeses. And, um, and you're on their side. And so um, Exit West was a novel that was written like that. It was a novel written uh, to say what it meant. Um, and to, um, in a sense, invite the reader to be on the side of those characters, and, and that's how I figured out how to write it.
0: And a, a final, final question from me is: is kind of circling back to to nine eleven and the response to it. You've you've talked, you know, just now to us and, and elsewhere about how this was a huge inflection point in your life, and it, it changed the way you were perceived. Do you feel any ambivalence in it also in some ways was a kind of root of huge success for you as well and that your your response to Reluctant Fundamentalist is perceived in many quarters as the definitive literary response and so forth and your career has, has kind of reached a huge dimension on the back of that. Yeah, as you say, it also kind of stripped to an extent your, your citizenship in Western society. So though, is that a tension that you're aware
2: of? Um, no, no, not really. I mean, uh, I, I think I think there's no doubt. Um, I remember Toni Morrison once said to me, you know, and uh, I said, I'm, I'm going to law school, we we're having lunch. And I said, I'm going to law school and um, I think that, you know, I'll do law school and also try writing novels. Um, do you think that's a good idea or should I just go off and like write books? She said, I think it's a good idea to go to law school. Um, And I must have looked pretty, you know, crestfallen uh, when she said that because, you know, maybe I'd secretly been hoping that, no, with your, you know, blinding talent, you, you, you know, you certainly should only write fiction. But she said, you know, I think you should, you know, you need a way to make a living. And Toni Morrison, remember, had worked as an editor for many, many years and then a university professor while she was a writer. Um, So she wasn't being dismissive. I think she was being actually very helpful. Uh, um, But she also said, you know, but you never know you know, maybe one day uh, Pakistani writers or, or whatever kind of writer she said, she said some, so, some sort of writer will be the flavor of the month. And um, and so in that sense, I guess, you know, there's a question which is, you know, did 9-11 uh, make The Reluctant Fundamentalist the flavor of the month and was my, uh, you know, writing career thereafter, uh, 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 you know, connected to that? You know, who knows? Um, I mean, certainly without The Reluctant Fundamentalist, there would never have been Without uh, 9-11, there would never have been Durban fundamentalist. Um, but I think I would have been pretty happy to have continued in the direction that I had gone with Motsmoke, uh, which was a novel that was, you know, really a very different kind of book, um, uh, exploring a, a very hedonistic um, side of South Asian life that became this kind of cult hit in, in Pakistan and in India and was, was very different from a lot of other books that had been published before that. And I think that was a different direction I might have gone down. But but weirdly enough, I think the same kinds of formal concerns were already present in that book and the same way of thinking about the novel. Um, I think the main difference is perhaps that you know I might still have a job uh, and write novels alongside that. But, but would I be doing the kinds of things formally and engaged with the kinds of things that I'm engaged in now? I suspect I would, because even without 9-11, the tensions that had begun to sort of appear and the cracks in our globalized society were appearing. And, uh, and I think a lot of my fiction has been reacting to that. And I guess another part of that is to say, partly I'm probably driven to write fiction by not being comfortable with the world as it is. Um, and, uh, and since I'm not comfortable with the world that it is, I try to enter into an imaginary world of making my own stories and to nudge the world along, I guess, in, in my own way. Um, had the world been a world I was more comfortable in living in, you know, maybe I wouldn't be a fiction writer. Um, but in that case, I might not have regretted it at all because uh, I may not have felt that urge to write fiction if the world was a world where I felt immediately at ease and very comfortable where things were headed.
1: Final question, really quickly, because I know we have to let you go. Appropriately enough about brevity, um, you've said you want to write the kind of novels that people can read in an afternoon or in a day, and I confess to having done that on more than one occasion with one of your books. Um, Why do you think that's the kind of format or length that you want to work with?
2: I think that there's, there's something about, you know, an oral storytelling tradition that's very attractive to me. The idea that you sort of sit around the fire at the end of the evening with your clan and somebody tells a tale. And the fire burns for two or three or four hours and, you know, you get deeper into the night and, this, and the, the story is done. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an encounter between two human beings that has a sort of length um, that one can imagine fitting an encounter between two human beings. And for me the sort of a short novel can do that and uh, and i'm attracted to that one other thing is of course that when uh, i don't write very quickly and i don't read very quickly and when i was a small child they thought i couldn't write in fact and so i had all these difficulties with writing and um and i was eventually told to just block print in capital letters and not to worry about cursive script and not to worry about my spelling and um and so i would you know write these very short answers to things uh i had to learn to take notes in class much more slowly than everybody else i had to learn how to write papers in those days you didn't do them on computer at princeton and harvard law you know much slower than everybody else We would hand in three or four blue books at the end of an exam and i would hand in one and one of the things that happens in a way i think i often tell young students who who tell me they have difficulty with school is that the thing that that is the biggest challenge for you in my case writing you know may very well turn out to be your superpower because uh when you aren't immediately good at something, um, you figure out ways of doing it uh, uh, for yourself. And I guess for me, as somebody who wasn't really good at writing, um, my way of doing it was to write very compressed, small things that hopefully said a lot in in small space because I didn't have the ability, I guess, to write uh, big things when I was younger.
0: Well, look, thank you for being a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes and wishing you all the best with the new novel and with your other projects going forward.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for
0: having me. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Mohsin Hamid. His website is MohsinHamid.com and his new novel, The Last White Man, is published by Hamish Hamilton. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview?
1: I thought Massin was a particularly thoughtful observer of his craft. I've, I really enjoyed the fact that we delved into everything from sort of the makeup of his sentences to the efficiency of his novels, as he calls it. So I felt that was an area that we don't always delve into as much with novelists. And he was um, particularly forthcoming on that front, as well as his own reading and the work that he puts into each book. How about you?
0: I was really interested in him as someone who made this move from the corporate to the literary world. And that's something that certainly a lot of people, people I knew at university kind of said they were going to do or fantasized about doing and and almost exclusively have not done. And (laughs) I was interested that he had um, pulled off that that kind of complicated life change in how he'd done it and then also as the perennial theme on the podcast of speaking to someone about what the experience of a huge multinational hit was like in in that case the reluctant fundamentalist and again he was he was kind mm-hmm. of candid and went into it so i think a, a great addition to our um collection uh, anyway rachel what have you been up to
1: well this is the end of the year it's the last episode of 2022 so um i'm now on my christmas holidays although technically i'm on duty should any sort of cultural disaster strike. Um, (laughs) So yeah, um, I guess we should take the opportunity to thank listeners. Uh, for supporting us this year and the guests that have generously appeared on our show, what have you been up to, Simon?
0: I was thinking, Rachel, you're constantly braced for cultural disaster, 24/7, 365, yep. ready. My
1: my pulse is just sky high at all times.
0: When yep. when the bat signal is raised, you um, you, you <laughs> it's jump a book signal. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, I am not on holiday yet, unfortunately. Uh, I will be as of Friday. I'm um, I'm wrapping up uh, bits of work for the end of the year and and bits of um planning and admin before going off to the mountains but I'd also like to say yeah a huge thank you to everyone who's who's been on the show as a guest and who's listened and also to Rachel for being such a pleasure to work with over the past Oh, likewise, past. Simon anyway uh, this has been Always Take Notes hosted by me Simon Aikam.
1: and me Rachel Lloyd
0: our producer and social media is Artemis Irvin who we'd also like to say a big thank you to for all her work in 2022 a huge thank you our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar
1: if you'd like to support us on Patreon we're on there and to always take notes and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website please do
0: many thanks goodbye